Wow, this is great. This is the first pop-up that we've had this, uh, this conference, so I think it's going to be a popular addition. Um, so thanks for coming, and I'm grateful for the Pain Week organizers for inviting me back to talk. And uh, before we get started, I just want a sense of who's out there, who's interested in this topic. So are there um, physicians and or pain specialists? I know a few were in the room, lots of you. Good. So you're probably all those referring to physical therapy <laughs> and primary care doctors as well. Um, or nurse practitioners, right? Yes, love you people. And uh, how about pharmacists? Excellent. You can learn some language to talk to your patients. And any rehab specialists, physical therapists? More than last year. Yes, good. Um, so did I miss any specialty, big one? No? Yes? No? Okay. Uh, and then other general question, who believes that core stability is really, really important for back health? I'm going to see if I can convince you otherwise. And who has no idea what core stability is? Be brave if you really don't know. A few of you, OK? Um, so it was interested to learn recently that um, where I work, we, we have fellowship rotations coming through from a prominent medical school. And I work in an interdisciplinary um, tertiary level care center within a big hospital system. And so we have fellowship trained pain physicians coming through, and I get to interact with them while they're with us for two months. And I was really interested to learn that the, the more recent fellow coming through told me, I don't know what core stability is. I don't know what that means, but I know I just need to send someone with back pain to go get that. And so that's part of what inspired my talk today, is um, people not having a good understanding of what core stability is, um, not understanding what the purpose is, and then maybe not even knowing what good it is or why it works if it does. So I'm going to do a little... Um, a little history today on what core stability is, but before we start, I do work for the Department of Veterans Affairs, but I'm not here on official, official capacity, so I just need to mention that whatever I say in today's talk is not necessarily representative of the Department of Veterans Affairs. Um, and I do, don't have any financial disclosures for you today, but I do work as part of a, a volunteer group of folks across the country and expanded to some international participants on the 20, 10 by 25 initiative. So this is a nonprofit organization trying to lessen the disability related to back pain by 10% by the time we get to the year 2025. So it's an interesting project, and so I have therefore a vested interest in understanding more about how to better treat chronic low back pain. And I will be referring to axial chronic low back pain, the non-radicular kind. The vast majority of the patients with back pain that we work with probably fit into this category. Uh, and I will talk a little bit, I'm going to challenge your beliefs, I hope, about um, what kind of rehab might be right for chronic low back pain. And I do hope that I, I, I'm glad that the majority of you in this room today are really strongly supporting core stabilization as an intervention for back pain. And I hope that I challenge some of those viewpoints. And I think we should have a good dialogue about it. So we may not have time within this short pop-up session, but afterwards or throughout the rest of the week in the conference, feel free to seek me out and uh, have some important conversations about this. So I'm going to describe a little bit about what the core is, and there is no general consensus. There are some you know, larger muscle groups that get, that get mentioned a lot in research, but there is no one definition, just to be aware. And I will take you through a history of how it came to be, uh, as far as I read the literature, how it came to be that this is so popular as a treatment intervention. And in addition to being a certified pain educator and a physical therapist, I'm also a certified strength and conditioning specialist, which means I did a lot of work in, in the sports-oriented world. Before coming to the VA, I was uh, in a sports medicine clinic 
and I was an athlete myself and value exercise quite a lot. Uh, so I absolutely taught and trained a lot of patients to work on their core <laughs> from the very rudimentary levels of motor, motor um, relearning to the high performance integration of these kinds of ideas. Uh, and I've swung back and forth on this pendulum on what core stabilization means and how valuable it is um, to the patients that we work with. So I will explain some of the research as I go along. So basic understanding of the core is it's generally in this area of the body, uh, which is, of course, no arms and no legs, everything in between. And there's some uh, references to the more superficial muscles, the rectus abdominis, also known as the six-pack muscle. Uh, some references to the deeper posterior stabilizers, which would be the um, iliopsoas complex, and then behind that here is the quadratus umborum. And um, more importantly, we're going to talk a little bit about, in terms of the history, the transverse abdominis, which is what some people call the corset muscle. So that's this guy here that runs, as name implies, crosswise. And uh, what's not pictured in some of these images that I selected are the internal and ex external oblique muscles. Those are less often mentioned in research, but one of the studies that I'm going to point out did in fact have embedded electrodes studying those two muscles. So those, uh, the obliques run right on top of the transverse abdominis and then the rectus abdominis is on top of that. So the multifidus is another highly sought after muscle to retrain in the rehab world. And it's actually a group of small fibers that run from the transverse process to the spinous process. They're really tiny and they assist in segmental rotation and also stabilization if they're um, contracted bilaterally. So since the 1960s, people have been trying to find a relationship between the core musculature and low back pain. And plenty has been written and studied in this area, but it wasn't until about 20 years ago, the early 1990s, when people started really looking into the TRA, or TA, or transversus abdominis. So Carolyn Richardson and her group did a couple of important studies that probably shifted the direction of focus for some other researchers after that. So in 1994 and 95, there are some studies that you can look at that uh, brought attention more to the rehab focus on the transversus abdominis. And then in 1996, that's really when we get into what I think caused a big shift in the application of rehab interventions or ideas around how to directly address back pain through these tiny muscles that wrap around and layer over top each other. So in 1996, Hodges and Richardson got together. Paul Hodges uh, has done a lot of research on the core or muscles around the core. And this was an important study. This was something that was talked about when I went to graduate school and I, I finished my training in 2005. Uh, and Hodges, Hodges and Richardson did an important study here where they looked at what happens when somebody is asked to raise their arm quickly is there some sequence of recruitment of these muscles? And what they decided was there is a timing difference. There's a timing issue here. So the arm raise task, I think it's important to point out that there's a really minuscule amount of time in difference of when these muscles were recruited and when they weren't. The task was this. They had these electrodes embedded into these various muscles, and I've... Uh, drawn this for you. So there's the abductor, which they uh, targeted the, the deltoid here. They use a transverse abdominis marker. They had in, internal and external obliques, and then they had rectus abdominis measured. They had some embedded electrodes and surface electrodes monitoring activity, and they checked how fast the muscles engaged. As soon as the person was cued with a visual, tack, uh, uh, visual cue, 
something flash on a screen, a cue to say raise your arm, and as soon as they see it, they raise their arm. So there's some external cue telling them when to switch on that, those muscles in order to perform the task. And what this research group found and then talked about quite a lot in the conclusions of their study was that in people who have low back pain, there is a delay in the onset of the activation of the transverse abdominis compared to the healthy controls. Okay? So everybody who, was had, who had at that point had a really hard time working with chronic low back pain cases thought, aha, this we can target. This we can start to do something with clinically or in the fitness world. And that's exactly what happened. And then, oh, like 50 milliseconds difference, right? So the actual numbers are, if you have, uh, let me see, I wrote this down. The no pain group had about um, the transverse abdominis engaged within a range of 9 to 84 milliseconds after the visual cue was prompted. And then at most, the deltoid would fire 136 milliseconds after the transversus. This is the healthy group. And then the low back pain group, the transversus abdominis would engage 50 milliseconds average after the deltoid was engaged. It's not a big difference. <laughs> no matter how you cut it, it's not a big difference. So here's what happened next. Oh, I want to go back to there's a brief study here that the, this, these two researchers did a year later looking at the breath and the timing, trying to dig down a little deeper. And they did actually find that when you are exhaling as the arm raised, you get a little better timing, um, a little sink in the timing of the transversus and the deltoid. So then this kind of idea expanded like wildfire. So this is just one sample. You do a Google search and you get tons of hits on core stabilization. This, this is particular poll that I got from a, a blog, fitness blog uh, in 2003. And, and this is the kind of language that people were using, having their aha moments and saying, this is where we need to shift our focus now. So I'll just read it out loud for those who may not be able to see it. It's, quote, it's not just the recruitment of these deep trunk muscles, but how they are recruited that is important. So now this is a non-clinician, uh, this is a non-healthcare professional, this is a fitness instructor, okay? Um, how they are recruited. Research by Hodges and Richardson shown that, showed that the co-contraction of the transverse abdominis and um, the multifidus muscles, MF is multifidus, those tiny little muscles in the back, the co-contraction of those two occurred prior to any movement of the limbs. This suggests that muscles anticipate dynamic forces that may act on the lumbar spine and stabilize the area prior to any movement. So he's saying, basically, if you don't have back pain, this is what your body does. And if you do have back pain, it's a timing problem. And this idea was perpetuated. These, these are things that I was taught to understand when I went through my graduate training as well. So I want to give some examples of what people do. Pardon me. Very significant impact on what people working with those who have back pain or those who don't want to get it, this is the idea they came up with. So these are some pictures, examples of core st stabilization exercises that you may have seen, that you may have done, that you may have told your patients to do. Um, and what's interesting about these is this is actually higher level. So, so the, the thought being, if there's a timing issue and we want to, and we know that it's these two very specific muscles, transversus abdominis and multifidus, then there were a whole slurry of researchers who went out setting about to figure out what movements and what positions will optimally challenge these particular muscles. So a whole other batch of EMG studies came out saying these kinds of poses preferentially target the transversus and the multifidus. Great. So then that's what we did. Right? That's what everybody tended to do. And of course, 
the research around that time showed that people with pain tended to get a little better when you do these things. Okay? But where's the exercise in this group that addresses the timing? Right? This is just focused on strengthening those muscles, but how does it get at the timing? So then there were some people more in the rehabilitation realm who did some research and looked into, uh, well, how do we actually specifically train these muscles to turn on before the larger mover muscles do? And that's where we had the inception of this drawing in maneuver. Anybody know what that is? You lay in this position like this, and this is really, really popular in rehab settings when you're dealing with people with low back pain. Often in a clinic, you'll have people like this. And the idea is if they can't control these muscles when they're standing, maybe we teach them how to do it in a different position where you're unloaded and you can focus a little better. So there were gadgets developed for this, and I've used them, one in particular by the Chattanooga group that uh, is basically a blood pressure cuff that was reformatted to put under for a biofeedback kind of mechanism. So you have a reading, a gauge that tells you when you're putting so and so much pressure on the cuff, and thereby you're able to quietly activate some muscles without activating the larger, more superficial muscles like the paraspinals and the rectus. Okay? And that does work for a lot of people, but we'll talk about why a little later. Um, so I want to say something else here. Uh, I'm going to stop before I go to the next slide because I think it's important to highlight a case that I had right around this time, 2007. I was two years out of school. I was working in a busy sports medicine clinic. We didn't have a high number of chronic pain cases that came through. Where it's largely post-operative, um, lots of very active adults and teens that came through that clinic. And so I had a patient. She was in her mid-40s. She had two young kids and she had debilitating back pain. I mean, the kind where in the 30-minute session, she was in tears because I had asked her to get into that position of the woman in green. And she came to me with a diagnosis of chronic low back pain. It had been going on for more than a year. There was no mechanism of injury that she could recall. Pretty classic presentation. And, of course, she got some imaging done, and the doctors told her about enterolisthesis. She had a grade one enterolisthesis. Okay? But remember, she's a busy mom, working part-time, very active around the house, little kids moving all the time, no mechanism of injury. And at that point in my career, I wasn't savvy enough to ask her about all those other psychosocial factors that mattered a lot. So I couldn't tell you much more about her life than that. But I remember distinctly this case, and I regret how I handled it at that time. And I didn't know any better. And I'm sure you all have cases that you go back and think on after you learn more today, right? Um, but she was really pivotal for me in my understanding of how all this worked. Because I didn't help her. I didn't help her at all. In fact, she left the clinic feeling worse than when she got there because I was trying to teach her about how important these small muscles were in her back and she couldn't get the blood pressure cuff to do what I asked her to do. And she was very upset by it, right? My clinical reasoning at that time was based on a lot of the research that had preceded my visit with her, and it had taught me a way to think and to frame low back pain as a stability mechanistic issue, and therefore, if there's weakness, we need to preferentially strengthen, and that will help. But in this woman's world, that didn't help at all. In fact, it made her more fearful of her body. And she didn't come back to the clinic, so I can't confirm that part, but that's the feeling I got when she left. So this interesting research uh, group, they took a look at qualitatively, what do people actually hear when we use words like stability? What do they actually hear? Well, they know the instability part. So this research group just interviewed patients with low back pain, chronic low back pain, and asked them, they gave them a, a list of words and asked them to tell the researchers what they thought they meant. 
And so this is just highlighting a couple of these. Instability, not a lot you can do about it, and you're likely to explode something any second. Right? So wouldn't it make sense that their bodies by then design are holding a little tighter before they even come in to see you? And wear and tear, I'm not going to talk about this today, but that's another common term that we use as clinicians. This might mean to a patient in, who's suffering that something's rotting away in there and there's nothing I can do about it, when we all know that that's just a normal part of active living and aging. Right? And then chronic, a couple steps from a wheelchair, right? So chronic low back pain and nonspecific chronic low back pain doesn't leave a lot of hope for folks who come to see us who have really debilitating pain and uh, don't know what to do about it. So the instability bit is, is pretty powerful, in my opinion, because I think when we are trying to intentionally help somebody, the way we describe our approach may, in fact, make them worse. And I, I think that was the case in the female patient that I worked with in 2007. And I regret that I don't have the chance to go back and correct that framework for her. Um, but I think we all have chances moving forward. We can do a better job. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, diffusely tender everywhere in the lower back region, right? So at that point it had been a year or more, so point tenderness was not, but, and she had real specific mechanical provocative pain, so bending forward was particularly hard for her. But she'd also been told that she has bones that were slipping around in there, right? That's kind of how clinicians in laypeople's term What do, I, what do I think having two babies with an anterolysthesis would do to musculature? Uh, it's, is it possible that that could have impacted her had this ha pain happened during or after pregnancy? Yes, but those were kids, five and three. And her pain hadn't started after or during labor or even shortly uh, after moving around. Weight gain? You're asking about weight gain? That I, I, couldn't, rem I couldn't tell you. Yeah. I'm not sure I asked specifically that, or if I did, I don't recall, right? So these are all factors that matter. I'm not saying mechanics don't matter. Yeah. So by the time she had seen me, she had had pain for quite a while, and um, you know, I don't have the MRI in front of me, but that's just what, I, what she had told me. So abdominal weight gain could increase anterolysthesis, right? So uh, back to the timeline. So after all of us were doing all these things based on a couple of ideas about specific small musculature being really important, then there was a systematic review done to figure out, is there any difference? And it turns out there really isn't any difference in terms of outcomes for people with low back pain if you do very specialized low back exercises, stabilization exercises, versus just generally being active and moving. So how can it be a timing issue if general exercise is just as good as really specific exercises. And even more important, three years later, this group found there's no improvement one versus the other if you just have a walking program compared to specialized core stabilization exercises. So general movement comes in a lot. Now, we know that there are many individual, uh, individual differences in the patients that we see with low back pain. And I'm sure you're going to hear later on this week how important the psychosocial factors are and how that can sensitize any, anybody's sleep status, um, their general stress level, 
the way their family manages their pain issue will all factor into sensitivity of tissues and therefore mechanical forces will mean more, right? But I think it's important that we understand just how much uh, negative beliefs about low backs can impact function and disability in the long term. And my argument today is less about how unimportant mechanical factors are, I think they do matter, more about how we talk about them and how that can impact a patient's function because of how they then start thinking about their body and their security within that body and what that body is able to do and what the pain means for them. So after the walking program, pretty devastating study to some of these other people who have been really religiously teaching this kind of thing and saying that's what you need to be healthy when a large group of people here did just fine just getting out and walking. And then you might be asking, well, did they ever recheck on that timing thing? And yes, they did. So this group did an eight-week uh, core stabilization training, randomized controlled trial, and they found out that even if pain got better, the timing didn't change. They did the same kind of setup with embedded EMGs, monitoring similar muscles, and the timing didn't improve even when the pain improved. Okay? Now, another thing that's really important here, these very impactful studies, and, and impactful because of how they changed the thinking pattern of those of us who work with chronic back pain, and we're always looking for some mechanism that we can treat that's natural and logical. So the number of subjects in the 1996 study 30 people, 15 in each group. The number of subjects in the 1997 study, five people, right? The number of subjects here, 109, so much stronger statistical value there. So the guy who kind of got this ball rolling, Paul Hodges, has been interviewed several times because core stabilization is so very popular. It is just, I mean, you can't go online and hit core and not see thousands of entries. And I can't see a low back pain patient that tells me I need a stronger core. It just, it, it doesn't happen. And I also have those patients who say, well, I tried all that core stuff and my back pain is still here. So how do you explain that, right? So Paul Hodges, in fact, has been pretty vocal and outspoken about saying, you know, that study that I did had an interesting finding, but I can't believe the outcome and, and how much this has cascaded, the domino effect of this, is incredible. And I think it moved people in the wrong direction. It's, a time, it's time for a change. And in 2013, he actually published a study that showed um, how this can be causing problems, this line of thinking in uh, focusing on stability, because it naturally implies that you're unstable, right? So other groups have worked off of this idea that instability is in fact not such a great way of thinking about mechanical low back pain or by the time they see me and maybe some of you as well it's not really mechanically prov provoked anymore not reliably so sometimes bending forward hurts sometimes it doesn't sometimes sitting for long periods hurts sometimes it doesn't right uh, and what's really fascinating this these couple groups of people studied the presentation of folks with low back pain and tried to look at a subgrouping. Well, maybe there's just a certain type of pain that we're not working with clearly enough. We don't understand it well enough. Um, and I'm going to give you a different kind of analogy to understand this. So if you, if you tell me that it hurts to bend over, what might you think I choose when I'm sitting? If it hurts to bend over, what might I choose when I'm sitting? What's my preferred sitting position? Which one? You, yeah, you might think that I, I would choose to sit like this if it hurts to flex. 
And same for the opposite group, when in fact, when they actually looked at this, these researchers, specifically O'Sullivan and his, his team, they found that people who said it hurts to extend choose to sit in extension. And people who say it hurts to flex will choose to sit in flexion. Now, how much sense does that make? These are not actual conscious choices, right? But when you ask them to sit in your clinic chair, that's how they prefer to be. And you ask them to sit up, and it hurts. But constantly in internal conflict, because their therapist has said, you need good posture, and they say, well, that hurts my back. Or the ones who like to be extended tell me, well, it, it puts too much pressure on my spine to flex. But then I ask them what hurts the most when they're in day-to-day -day life, which is reaching up, right? So, so this mismatch got people really curious, right? Um, and plenty of other studies have come around to help us understand. Uh, you know, there's actually a, a much stronger cor correlation with low back pain and disability outcomes with all these other factors. And Lewis and his team actually looked at EMG studies, pairing it up with these psychosocial factors. And they found that, in fact, if you have higher EMG activity in the trunk, these other things are worse. So here we are telling people they have to use their core more, and that might even make them worse because of the increased muscle activity, the fatigue point, you know, the uh, change in acid level um, from uh, overactive muscles, not good blood flow, lots of factors that we could discuss, but the data is there. So why does it work for some people? Because a lot of you, you know, raise your hands, you might refer patients, you might, might use these techniques yourself. Why does it work for some? This is just my theory, right? The, the reference I have down low points out a really important study that I think we should all know about, and that is the one strongest predictive factor for positive long-term outcomes in chronic low back pain is self-efficacy. So if somebody feels confident and able to internally control some change in their life, they will do better. So going back to those little blood pressure cuff training sessions that I had, that instills a sense of confidence when a professional says, yes, you did it, you did it right, you couldn't do it last week and now you can, that's awesome. Self-efficacy gets bit, built. Or you have somebody who has a hard time holding a plank the first time you meet them, and two weeks later after practice, they can hold it for a minute. Awesome. They just did great. They build self-efficacy. And of course, they're building it perhaps in a framework thinking I'm getting stronger muscles around my spine, and that may strengthen um, or keep my spine more resi resilient. And if you're looking for other in interesting research on uh, confidence, Amy Cuddy has a good TED talk on how just feeling confident can, in fact, improve your physiology. So, wrapping up, arguments for core stabilization definitely can help performance. There are plenty of uh, studies in the fitness world that absolutely are in favor of core stabilization exercises. Core sta stability exercises can help pain. This is a pretty substantial subject size that shows people do better, right? And certainly, we're going to be building good self-efficacy in some folks when we train them in core stability exercises. And then maybe there are some, some room for subgrouping, looking at those who prefer extension versus those who prefer flexion and, and gearing our rehab towards that. My arguments, however, against, I would just put this seed in your minds today and think about the next time you're with a low back pain patient, do they really need a stronger core? Or are they already walking around holding everything tight because someone told them they need that? And that's the majority of the patients that I work with, where they just have stopped for years. They've stopped getting up out of a chair without bracing for a punch in the gut. 
And this is how they live their lives. Mechanically, it's not efficient. It may be causing some other problems. And definitely, I think it does contribute to some kinesiophobia, where they can only move around if they're really bracing their belly. Negative health beliefs, we know there's plenty of research on that. And it might actually uh, lead to lower self-efficacy. Like the gal I worked with in 2007, who left my office feeling terrible that she couldn't do what I asked her to do. This really complicated, small muscle activation. And she was in pain and scared and laying on her back and didn't understand her condition. And that leads to you know, fear avoidance. If I'm not bracing in my belly, I can't pick up my kids. If I'm not strong in the core or I slacked off on my home exercise program, I'm liable to get a new back injury. These are the cases that I see. And we know that it's no better than other modes of exercise or manual therapy. So think individualizing. Think about what that person in front of you is telling you about their pain. Instead of thinking you have back pain and you need to strengthen your core, I think it's time we uncouple those two things and look more at the individual. Do I prescribe core stability exercises? Yes, I do. Very selectively. Very selectively. And where I work now, tertiary level care clinic, meaning I see everybody after they've seen five other PTs, I do not do that. I spend most of my time teaching them how to get off a chair without holding their body stiff. And that takes weeks to do. So. You decide for yourself. <laughs> Those are some good core exercises. And I would, love to take, I would love to take some questions if we have any time. It looks like it's right at noon. So feel free to go get your lunch. And thanks for coming. <laughs>